0: People who are a fan of Game of Thrones or Song of Ice and Fire. So the, the ones who have read the book, they are desperately waiting for the new edition of the book. And the, there is a version of the book that has been written by an algorithm. So the algorithm has digested the whole corpus of the previous books and everything else that the author has written and then tried to write what would be the sequel of the book. So these are things that that could happen, but is it going to be as good as what the author writes? I'm not sure.
1: Thought-provoking stuff about the impact of AI and big data. We are currently living in the midst of a gold rush in AI, Every major company is using it to harness the power of big data, and it's reached a point where people are talking about an economic or technological war between the US and China as being fought on the AI front. This is Changing Careers, a podcast about the changing nature of MBA careers and how MBAs can change their careers. I am Conrad Chua. Unlike the previous IT revolution, we largely don't see the impact of AI and big data, yet they are ubiquitous. From the way the latest iPhone recognizes your face, to Amazon Alexa answering your questions, to Google serving search results. Yet questions remain about how do companies use data science and AI, and what will be the impact on society. To help us better understand these issues, I'm excited to have Iman Karimi, a consultant with BCG Gamma, which is dedicated to data science. As always, we start with Iman introducing himself.
0: Yes, uh, I'm Iman Karimi. I'm a project leader and gamma lead data scientist. I've been in BCG since 2014, and I've been always involved in big data and advanced analytics. And since the formation of gamma uh, in 2016, I've been a part of it. My focus are in particular problems that are related to predictive analytics and across a range of industries. Most of them are in mass consumer type of industries, uh, insurance, banking, uh, telcos, uh, retails, etc.
1: MBAs generally think of strategy consulting firms as monolithic and homogenous. Then they learn that there are practice areas such as operations. Gamma sounds quite different. What is Gamma and how is it organized?
0: Within ABCG, we originally started as a strategy company. right? So there was only one functional expertise originally, and no industry expertise. With time, it was realized that in a strategy, in different industries are slightly different. So you need to have industry knowledge and expertise. So industry practice areas came to be. Then, especially with the, well, the moment of operations and process reengineering, new functional practices came. So. Then at one point we had marketing and pricing, and then um, IT, which is now called technology advantage, etc. So in that sense, gamma you could say is the data science and advanced analytics practice of the BCG, but it is one of the only two practices that is also a global virtual office. By that I mean that the. Inherent units of the BCG are local offices and in some cases a system. So for instance, all of the offices in Germany are a system. And it means that they have discretion in recruiting, in a staffing, uh, in career developments, etc. Right. And Gamma and Technology Advantage Office are the same. Right. So they the recruitment of Gamma is centralized in Gamma even though people could be physically in different places. So I'm based in London. We have ops in Berlin, Paris, other places. But uh, the recruiting is centralized in in Gama. And to some ways, it's more regional than completely global because of obvious time differences, et cetera, for practicality reasons. A typical consultant in the London office is essentially most of the main decisions are made by the office it is influenced by the practices so if he has expertise in ops and uh, let's say insurance both of those industry and functional industry have some influence on what he's going to work on etc uh in gamma the main influence or the main decisions are made by gamma but obviously the local offices and other practice areas you know so for instance, one of my core industries in insurance, and you know, I would try to dedicate some time for that. And this is something that the insurance practice area would also uh, cherish it. But the main kind of the driver of the decisions would be income.
1: Does that mean any changes in terms of how you or a member of Gamma are recruited or developed within BCG compared to a traditional consultant?
0: So starting with the recruiting. Uh, so we say half of the process is the same. So people still would do case interviews. And the reason for that is we, we are using data science and artificial intelligence and still as a tool. Our, our main type of work is still the same. We solve problems with different type of tools, but in a way that are explainable to the client. Right. This is the most important type of a, uh, say, con- a difference between job of a consultant and someone else. We are not successful if we cannot successfully explain how we have solved the problem and the client buy into that. So, and in particular cases of Gamma, the thing is that we are not trying to say, we are going to be here forever and doing everything that you want to do with advanced analytics. Our main value proposition is that we will enable you to come. So we are not going to just sell you fish. We are going to teach you fishing. So um, in that sense, people have to have some consulting skills, even though they are going to be data scientists. The other half of the process is different and unique to the gamma. So there is technical interviews that you know, people would be tested on their mathematical knowledge, on the knowledge of the advanced analytics and different flavors of it. And obviously, no one expects that everyone, especially at more junior levels, knows everything. But at least they should be strong in some uh, part of the spectrum of the capabilities that we need. And some of the tests are literally tests and they are hands-on. So there would be coding and uh, doing modeling, which will be then uh, seeing that how good the model was done and how good was the code was written.
1: Operationally, on a day-to-day basis, do you work differently from other generalist consultants? Or do you work in teams with other generalist consultants or just within Gamma?
0: Always we work with classic teams. Now, the ratio of the overall team depends on the scope of the work and how big is the analytics problem solving in that specific project, right? But you can imagine that it's always like two pyramids, that one of them could be bigger than the other, but still you have two pyramids next to each other. So the pyramid of the classic team and the pyramid of the gamma team, right? And um, we, in some ways, our modus operandi is very similar to the classic consultants. Uh, we are not back-office, we are client-facing, we, and this is one of the reasons that people are tested for consulting skills. So they should be able to explain to the client, so I've done this sophisticated modeling, but how does it work at a higher level? And how can I show you, even though you cannot uh, or, ne- or not necessarily know exactly how this works, But you gain confidence that this is not just uh, uh, pulling something over your head and just black magic, but it's real and it's going to help you with your business. Um, In some ways, it's slightly different in the sense that we need some time for coding. right? And at the same time, we need also time to develop our technical skills. One kind of uh, difference that it shows itself is the amount of time that we spend at the client side. So whereas the consultants are typically, uh, classic consultants, four days a week at the client side, we spend at most three days. And the two days would be at the home office so that you have a bit of more free uh, in the sense of you know, n- not being in an environment that you be, uh, ask questions constantly so you can seclude yourself if necessary and focus on writing the code and cracking the problem.
1: Gamma divides the work into three chunks. Envision, AI Activator, and Enabling. Envision is about thinking of the solution. Enabling is scaling. But what is AI Activator? So
0: as you said, Envision is trying to help and ideate and prioritize opportunities that are related to AI and advanced analytics. And Enable, as the name says, is in many situations uh, the client don't have an existing data science team. So by the time that there is a product in place or a prototype in place, you also need to help them to have both the technical infrastructure and the team to be able to carry on. But the activator and the way we call it, as I said, you know, our job is not just to develop an algorithm. Our job is to solve a problem. And to solve a problem with AI, it means it needs to be incorporated and integrated in your organization. Right? So the AI activation has four phases in itself. It has a preliminary phase that once you have identified a concrete opportunity that you think that AI is going to bring value you do a more quantitative analysis after capturing the relevant data so I want to say that is it worth investing this is really as promising as we thought based on high level analysis that was done in the envision if that's positive you start with the prototype phase and you create Uh, an algorithm that is trained retrospectively based on historical data. And if that algorithm uh, shows that there is going to be benefit in deploying this algorithm in the field, then you go to the next phase, which is called incubation. Incubation is that now you want to deploy it in a controlled way and check how the model performs. Uh, in the real world when possibly some of the data that it has not seen before because it has been trained on the past and future is not always the same way as the past has happened. Nevertheless, if the algorithm is well-trained, it should be able to cope more or less well with the new situations as well. And if it does not, it means that it needs to be retuned and refined. At the same time, in that process, once you see, you're thinking about the rest of the things that should happen. So you have the algorithm and it's working. Now in order to integrate this into organization, you need to have some technological enablement, and you need to have some process changes, and there needs to be uh, some transformations in the way of working, etc. So. In the incubation phase, you start to map out what are what is needed to be uh, done in that sense, and then finally in the industrialization or scaling is that okay? Now I'm confident that this model is working. The real uh, field test has shown that that is uh, uh, sustainable and it uh, it does what it has been promised, and uh, we would now want to have a model that when it's working for every customer, so when you're doing it in a control sense, you might be working with 10% of the population. Now you want to expand it to 100%. And if you think about uh, companies that work in multiple countries, it might be that each of their data sources are slightly different, and then you need to have slightly different flavors of the model, be it the how they're ingesting the data or the, even the core model that is going to do essentially the same thing, but with a slight difference. And at the same time, it needs to be written in a very efficient manner so that it doesn't create uh, hiccups in, in practice.
1: What's the main challenge that clients face when adopting AI solutions to their business?
0: Uh, we have named like 10 examples of that but I can group them maybe in three to four categories. One of them is starting in the wrong place or in the wrong manner, right? It's either starting with very small opportunities all across the organization and not dedicating enough attention to each of them. So things that we are calling like like mosquitoes, right? Whereas there is the mammoth that you have to aim for. It could be and this is often the trap, uh, because the data is almost always imperfect I start with building whatever is the flavor of the day in the .IT. world to get hold of the data and make them available. So at the moment, data Lake, by the way, is the flavor of the day. And then these massive .IT. projects take a couple of years to implement, and by the time they're finished, they're already starting to become outdated. And by then you have spent millions and still no value coming out of it. Right. Next thing uh, challenge that often we see is that oh, we have hired this group of geniuses, but we are not seeing any impact. And sometimes the things that they have developed are actually very cutting-edge, right? In both in terms of sophistication or even results. But they are either not really leveraged in the same sense that it needs to be integrated so that you can reap the rewards of it, or uh, the, the business has not really uh, seen the value of it to engage, right? So this will become like an ivory tower, more or less, academical solution. Or it has been done on something that it doesn't have a meaningful impact. So saying that, okay, I see the benefit of it. It Might be three hundred percent, but is less than 0.1 percent of my EBITDA is not really worth any putting any energy on. it. So that's kind of one group of uh, problems. The another one is what we call buying into the black magic. So there is a big now market of you know. Some of them are snake-old merchants, and some of them are maybe real. But generally, they say that you give us your data, and we are going to give you the results. Right? And we have this fantastic solution that has worked for many industries, or for this industry specifically, and can solve all of your problems. Right? And... It might be tempting at times just to buy into that, saying, okay, I'm going to pay this price and the problem will be solved. But the issue is often that um, people who have tried to solve a very specific problem. You see that how many idiosyncrasies, even when you're working in the same industry on the same problem, there are so many different idiosyncrasies and uh, things that you need to be careful. It is difficult to have one algorithm that is going to be a panacea for all of the uh, problem. So they would not be happy with the outcome. And as a result, uh, they would try and uh, start to mistrust and not use it. Or in some situations when they still see the value of it, but they say, "Okay, I need to understand, though, why this is malfunctioning." Then they are handcuffed by the .IP saying that. Cannot give the details of our algorithm. Uh, we cannot look under the hood um, or beyond a certain level. And then finally, you have more pragmatic challenges. As I mentioned, many companies don't have a data science team, and they say, "Okay, so where have to we start? You know, uh, how many people we need to get, and what does make sense to uh, to aim for?" And the other thing that I mentioned, you always have the challenge with the data. Data could be qualitatively having problems; they could be in silos and not connected, etc. So these are things that makes uh, uh, a breakthrough more challenging.
1: At this point in the discussion, I want to remind you that. You can listen to some of our back episodes to hear other perspectives on big data. In episode 11, I spoke with David Stillwell, a member of faculty at Cambridge Church Business School, about how companies should use big data responsibly. And in episode 12, Maya Hovia talked about how data is the new oil. Coming back to our interview with Iman, for the second part of the show, our discussion shifted gears. I wanted to talk about some of the philosophical aspects of AI. I asked Ingman, will AI replace humans in many jobs? And if we can make this more concrete, will AI replace a large chunk of strategy consulting?
0: Like any other technological advancement, it will certainly change functions. There will be some jobs that will be obsolete, right? And there will be some new ones that would be created. So while it would certainly replace some people uh, in the way, and it has already started, right, in the manufacturing, especially with the industry point, uh, 4.0 and, you know, robots that are communicating with each other, etc. So uh, that's one of the reasons it's not all about outsourcing that, you know, you see in manufacturing there is always job cuts because the same things is being done more efficiently. I would say all of the positions or roles that are doing something very specific, and this does not necessarily mean to be low skill. I was joking with a friend of mine that was a physician that probably in your line of work, pathologists are the ones that are in the first line of fire. Because most of their job is looking at a pattern of things, be it the results of a test or looking at different type of scans and trying to see whether this means sort of ailment or not. And this is one of the things that machines are pretty good and ever getting better at learning. So, in the same sense that nowadays uh, credit card application, ninety-nine percent of them are. Uh, approved or declined automatically, and maybe 1% are sent to the underwriters. And from them, most of them are actually light touch. It's just because there's been a flag and someone has to look at it. Uh, there are few situations that somebody has to really look at different details and make a human judgment. And there was a time that all of those applications were processed by underwriters. Uh, I would say there were some type of roles and jobs that would be replaced. With the consultants, I think what would happen again is that the skills that would be required uh, to do even a strategy jobs in 10 years would be quite different than it is now. And uh, those who can adapt themselves at least to the level of being able to use and understand how this works, even if they're not able to make it themselves, right? Um, They can still be relevant and in the game. And um, yeah, so it's it's more kind of changing what is required and what skills is required. And some roles that the skills have 100% overlapped with the development of machines would be eliminated. But I don't think, and I think since the Industrial Revolution you know, two centuries ago, humans were con- constantly afraid that the machines are going to replace them completely. And it has not yet realized. It might yet happen someday, but I think at the moment, the practitioners that, as I said, you, if you've tried to solve one very concrete, a special problem with a given data uh, in a, certain company and see how challenging that is, creating something that is as sophisticated as humans that can adapt itself to different situations, think about different problems at the same time and with different uh, type of um, nature and uh, the way to interact with them, that's quite difficult. Some aspects of it are pretty good. You, with the advancement in natural language processing, uh, we have capabilities of you know machines that can interact with humans uh, linguistically. I don't know whether you've had so people who are fan of Game of Thrones or Song of Ice and Fire. So the the ones who have read the book, they are desperately waiting for the new edition of the book, and the they're is a version of the book that has been written by an algorithm. So the algorithm has digested the whole corpus of the previous books and everything else that the author has written, and then tried to write what would be the sequel of the book. So these are things that, that could happen. But is it going to be as good as what the author writes? I'm not sure.
1: I wasn't a huge fan of the most recent season of Game of Thrones, so it might turn out better than the TV show at least. I think there's a lot of public anxiety about AI, not just about the impact on jobs, but also about transparency and fairness. You talk about credit approval, and obviously in the past when it was done by a human, that human was operating based on certain rules. Now that it's done by an AI, would people accept a decision by an AI more than they did in the past from a human?
0: That's a very good question. I guess that you would, unless there is a bug in the algorithm, a machine is going to be less unbiased than a human being, because it has no emotion. An interesting question, you know, in in interaction with the machines, especially with the autonomous cars, right? So how would people, when they are a certain number of them, that people can take them more seriously that, you know, this is a human and this is a non-human? Am I going to, how I'm going to differentiate in my behavior? Would it be the differentiation of the behavior? To be honest, there's a lot of questions to, unanswered. I, I think the more you know, and it comes out of this black magic, even for companies at the moment, AI and advanced analytics to a large extent, is still black magic. Uh, they don't know what exactly it is and it becomes ever more important, so it cannot be completely ignored anymore. But education helps a lot in the sense of, you know, teaching what they actually do, how do these things learn, what are they capable of at the moment and what they are not to reduce this anxiety. The other point that you mentioned, uh, obviously when internet came along, it reduced the information symmetry between companies and individual people, right? Suddenly, we were able to compare the prices. We were able to read the reviews of different people that have had experience with that company, et cetera, information that we didn't have before. Now, AR gives for a while advantage to the companies again, because they are able to put the resources in order to uh, digest the data and uh, come to more advantageous decisions today. But the way I think about it is that it cannot be kind of in an abusive way for a long time. And the reason is the following. If you think about the GDPR and the regulations that will follow it, for sure, because there are so many things that are still not covered by GDPR, especially derivative type of information, information that you have not directly provided, but it has been derived from the other information that was uh, agreed, and something that you don't want to share that. What, what, how is this gray zone started? But basically, data is like the oil of the future, uh, except the, the difference is that the main criteria is about trust, right? And this is why, Scandals that my companies that are going through with breach of data, etc., is going to be very damaging because if people stop to share their data and legislations and regulations stop companies to do that, your algorithm is as good as the data that is coming to it, right? So, um, and in many senses, especially my favorite topic of personalization, uh, which means what is the right action to do at what right time for each customer if it's done right it's going to be to the benefit of both sides not a win-lose situation towards the company but a win-win i get what i want and the company gets more value out of me but the value was worth it right and even the sacrifice that they have done to some extent to my privacy was worth it because I'm receiving the relevant recommendation. I'm receiving uh, the service that I really needed. Um, and the company is benefiting from it. So both are happy.
1: Iman, if we turn to yourself, can you tell us about your career and how you've made your career transitions?
0: Sure. So I think the biggest um, turning point in my career started pretty early on when I. S- stumbled on an article about artificial intelligence, and on a whim decided to do my master thesis on uh, artificial intelligence, in particular, neural networks. So, and then, as a result of that, I need to take courses to understand what the hell a neural network actually is, to be able to, to uh, use it for a certain application. And there, I came to the first uh, uh, confrontation with the usage of artificial intelligence in management and decision making, and that convinced me this is the way forward. If we have ever more data, and bear in mind, internet it was still at the infancy those days you know, early two thousand. It was not as ubiquitous as it is. There was still no smartphones, uh, but it was looking that we still have, we already have a lot more data than we ever had. And since then, this has been ever more uh, extrapolated in, uh, or exponentially uh, grown. So I, I think the biggest and most important decisions that I made is that I stuck to my guns. I said, this is the path I want to do forward. So I uh, did my PhD in the way that I say I need to work on the topic that I want to work. I had to make some compromises. In some ways, you know, saying, for instance, for my PhD, I did it on the topic that I liked, but in order to have the research project and so on, try to find a usage that is relevant to the field of application that was uh, my research project.
1: So your PhD was that on uh, earthquake? Was that right?
0: Yeah. So that was the application. Oh, that's the application. Yeah. Okay. So. The topic itself was about uncertainty in decisions, which means risk, and especially risk uh, uh, management and risk analysis when you have a sparse data, when you don't know the physics of the problem well, and you don't have lots of data to be able to figure out the behavior of the system, as we now do in many of our applications with uh, machine learning. And uh, then I went to analytics in insurance. And I only came to the consulting when they wanted me uh, in the role of analytics and when it became popular finally. So in 2012, when big data finally broke through. And um, what I would recommend, I mean, in general to people that if they, 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 stick to their beliefs as long as uh, it survives the test of reality, right? So uh, what I believed is that this revolution would happen sooner or later, and I think that by reinforcing my, my knowledge in this field, I would be valuable when it finally comes to pass, and it was true. During the MBA, I think one of the interesting things was that how, a bit uh, fortuitous, but how faithful I remain to my statement of purpose, what I meant to do uh, with things that I want to learn during the MBA. So at the time I thought, if uh, by the time I'm finished, uh, the, you know, no company is interested to take uh, advanced analytics and artificial intelligence seriously, I'm gonna start my own company. But um, by the time I was done, As I said, it was already starting, and uh, in every decision that I made since, um, then it was the most important thing that I want to be doing the job I want to do, and that is using artificial intelligence and advanced analytics in practice.
1: I'm tempted to ask you, did you use those principles for your own career decisions, these principles of big data?
0: Not yet. to be honest, the topic of my PhD thesis really came from you know, with the idea that we all have to make decisions with limited data at the time. Right? And when you look back and say, well, if I had this information, I would have decided differently. <clears throat> and I wanted to know if there is a way that I can quantify uncertainty based on available data at the time and if it could help the decision-making. So, uh, while it has its own applications in the field of insurance and disaster management and so on, wasn't directly uh, implementable in the personal life as I wished.
1: I guess it's been quite a change in terms of like when you did your PhD, for example, you said the application was on like earthquake mm. where they're very rare, thankfully very rare yes. <laughs> events. Uh, but now we're- Tons of data. Uh, do you think that that part, you know, that that early uh, background in sparse data has helped you, and continues to help you now that data is almost exploding? Um. So two things. First of all, even though that we have a
0: lot of data as a whole, but Still, in many situations, for instance, as I said, my favorite topic of personalization, in every company, there are people that you have lots of data because they're interacting a lot. And then you have a big portion of the customers that you have very little data points about them. So even in the era of big data, it doesn't mean that in every instance and situation, you have a lot of data and you don't have a sparse data problem. So that's one thing. The second thing I guess it is rather than that specific application and the subjects, what what has helped me enough or a lot in my career in general was that I always believe that mathematics is at the core of everything, right? So one of the advice that I always give to the data scientists is that. Knowing how to code and use packages and so on is very good. But never forget that at the heart of these things is mathematics. If you don't know what the package is doing, you will turn into just an operator. And you're likely prone to make mistakes. Uh, and you will not be able to spot it because you don't really know what it sh- how it should behave. Uh, so I think the... Biggest advantage uh, or the biggest benefit that I took from my PhD was that it was a bit more poor mathematical uh, problem, dealing with probability and imprecise probability and so on. So this is something that has helped me a lot afterwards.
1: That was Iman Karimi from BCG Gamma. I had a great time learning from Iman about big data, AI, and the impact on societies and companies. I hope you also start to think about which parts of your job are routine and hence most vulnerable to being replaced by AI. It is uncomfortable if a large part of your job could be done by a machine, but as Iman showed, you can also make a career transition to stay ahead of those trends. Remember to subscribe to this show on Apple Podcasts. If you can, leave a rating and review. It helps others discover this show. Till next time, This is Conrad Chua on Changing Careers.